This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Following the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption And the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from the Great White North And his studio beneath the stairs Here's Richard And welcome once again to Strange Planets. On this episode, we're going to delve into magic and the origin of art, science, and culture. Let me just crib here briefly from the uh, the back cover of a, a brand new book by Carl Abramson. Since the dawn of time, magic is the node around which all human activities and culture revolve. As magic entered the development of science, art, philosophy, religion, myth, and psychology, it still retained its essence that we have a dynamic connection with all other forms of life. And uh, as I mentioned, the author, Carl Abramson, is with us. He writes fiction, material about the uh, arts and entertainment, esoteric history, culture, as well as uh, artists' portraits for the international market. He lectures on all of the aforementioned subjects of art schools, universities, events, symposia, and conferences, and also works with filmmaking in publishing, photography, and music. Previously, he authored Culture, Residences, and Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan. Carl, welcome to Strange Planet. How are you? Thank you very much. It's great to be here, and uh, I'm doing great. Thank you. I want to dial back to your previous book just for a moment, if I could. Oculture. What is? What do you mean? What is oculture? Well, it's uh, in part you could say it's a punny uh, joining of two words, uh, the occult and culture, and they go really well together. And that's you know technically, but also as a phenomenon, it's something that is very very interesting. It's become sort of my obsession in a way. Uh, this merger uh, signifies when something has moved from being occult, meaning hidden, uh, meaning ostracized, meaning rejected, meaning uh, uh, perhaps staying outside, staying hidden because of self-preservation. But anyway, this movement into perhaps not the mainstream, but also the mainstream, but mainly into culture, our general culture. And this, this could be for many reasons. For instance, it could be because of 
survival of an idea. You know, if something is contained in an environment that's uh, traditionally obfuscating, you know, for protection or self-preservation uh, or outer pressure, uh, there's a chance that those ideas become inert. You know, if there's like no new blood, uh, no development, no working with the idea, uh, just something that you contain in a container because it's supposed to be a secret, you know. Um, for things to be alive, they need to move, they need to flow. And so when an idea moves, it could, for instance, move into a higher sphere of general acceptance. Um, there are many examples of this, of course. Um, it could be, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to do with hocus pocus, you know, something magical per se, moving into becoming, you know, a Harry Potter kind of presence in our culture it could also do with something scientific something that's been regarded as you know not worth the while or rejected but that someone a scientist decides to take a look at again after maybe 100 years 200 years and and they say wow this is not so bad after all let's you know let's dust get rid of the dust of this particular idea and see if we can apply or implement it in our present time you know that's also what i call an occulturation when something moves from the occult into to uh, the mainstream so uh, it's a word that signifies I will say mainly stuff that comes from the hocus pocus uh, historic history that we have. It could be religious stuff. It could be spiritual stuff. It could be um, pre-scientific things that are now um, growing with more people aware that it's growing out in the open. You know, not necessarily underneath the surface in the soil, but up in the garden you know, uh, powered by sunlight and, and uh, for general consumption in a way. Right. So, uh, for example, um, astrology. I mean, we can read mm -hmm. the, uh, the astrology in the weekend newspaper and mind yes. you, it's very superficial, but mm -hmm. uh, most people are aware of, they, they, they could tell you what their sign is. You know, mm -hmm. that was the big thing in the 70s, right? What's your sign? Um, uh, things like, um, I, I, you know, I have friends when we worked together and we were on the road uh, in a hotel at night, um, one of them would pull out the tarot deck and we were right. all fascinated. I didn't, we didn't know much about it, but it seemed it kind of, it was a curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. Ouija, yeah. boards, Ouija boards, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can still, Parker Brothers, I think, still produces Ouija boards. So these, mm -hmm. I don't know, these are like vestiges from the past that we haven't let go of, but why do they, why do they stick with us? Why are they still here? Okay, that's a very good question. Now, now you're getting me started. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, I believe that this general process of uh, acculturation that's going on, let's also mention one more example that I think people are, they realize how this works, you know, uh, even in the 70s and the 60s and further, further back, yoga was something that looked, you know, looked something weird, something fringe, something occult, you know, so you go to some ashram in India and stay with a guru, you know, like the Beatles, whatever. Um, but today it's like the most commonplace thing where uh, every housewife and her friend, you know, goes to yoga and they sort of... Uh, uh, yoga clothes with yoga mats. It's a lifestyle thing. That's a, a prime example of, of uh, acculturation. The reason why these things 
um, have remained so vital is that they speak to d deeper layers of ourselves. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to call it like a, a deeper layers of our soul, but just to our to our being, to our to our uh, existence. Um, perhaps, for instance, we have an inherent need of using a tool, something visual, to mirror back to us. You know, with, with a symbol to mirror back, we can project on that and get something back. We could also call that a very intuitive process. It's not necessarily something you know occult in the sense that there are other outer forces telling us secrets. It could just be simply like Carl Jung said. You know, there are deeper layers of our soul, and we need to communicate with those in order to find more uh, meaning in life and also more information about ourselves. So things that have never uh, gone away you mentioned astrology that's the prime mirror in a way because of course we are all vain we are all curious about ourselves and how other people look upon us so we want to know what's going on in the sort of non-rational or irrational uh, layers or aspects of our life and of course what a great mirror to have you know space with the planets and these incredibly powerful forces that they are even in a scientific way of looking at things they they are really powerful uh, forces so of course they will affect us so you mentioned um, brief superficial astrological analyses that might not really be correct like in in general media but then of course we have these astrologers who devote their lives to uh, interpret these, this uh, tradition. Uh, and um, I'm sure there are many, you know, uh, con people, people who are not serious, who just want to make a quick buck, etc. by reading people, like a cold reading of people, and then projecting back what they think they want to hear, you know. But I believe that... Um, uh, all of these things, let's call them mirrors or oracular tools, uh, they are attractive simply because we are interested in ourselves. And if psychology in general or our gossiping or self-help books, if that if they can't fill the, the deeper needs that we have, then we need to go something else, for instance, into religion, for instance, into other kinds of spirituality. Uh, there's an inherent need there. And I think today specifically, there's a bit of a warning sign because we are flooded with news and information about how dire straits you know we're actually in uh, with the planet, the climate, all kinds of things, and there are wars. Uh, we are in dire straits. So how does the individual human cope with all of this uh, angst that that evokes? You know, uh, and I would say one of the ways is to instinctively uh, look for new avenues, uh, new ways of thinking, new ways of acting. And we can rationally um, say that, yeah, this is not so good. But then again, it usually stops on that level because we are creatures of comfort. We are in the comfort zone. We are usually very uh, rigid, not willing to, you know, budge <laughs> until there's a real catastrophe looming um but that's the problem there is a catastrophe looming uh, and um so i think it's part of the survival instinct that we are now a little bit more open-minded and we look at these traditional things that we've had in our culture and assessing them and seeing maybe there's something here that we should take a look at
And that one of those things could be, for instance, uh, shamanic cultures and sort of indigenous cultures where uh, traditionally those cultures uh, are living closer to the earth, both literally and metaphorically. I do want to come back to uh, nature and magic, mm -hmm. uh, but um, so much of our culture here in the West is, for better or worse, it's pop culture. And uh, it's, you know, it's driven by social media and it's driven by memes and awards shows where you have, um, you know, the latest it person who's popular with a song. And and sometimes we see them up there and they're they're flashing uh, interesting occult symbols and signs. And um, what is that all about? I mean, it, are they just is that a marketing ploy uh, or are they not maybe? fully conscious of you know where that's coming from um i would say that it's uh, hard to generalize like 100% about that of course there are exceptions there might be some people who are you know devoted or seriously interested in a philosophy and then flaunt a symbol or whatever uh, however i do think in these um, contexts that you're talking about meaning public life uh, pop culture uh, shows, social media, etc. It's such a what's the name of that uh, Tom Wolf book? Uh, it's such a bonfire of the vanities mm -hmm. in a way. You know, it it's um, here today, gone tomorrow. It's evanescent. It's just like little flares, not even fireworks. Uh, and um, the reason why that is, it's it's been like that for a hundred years or more. It's just to um, I don't know, provide the uh, anxious with some form of light entertainment to take their minds off of their lives with which they are not happy. Uh, because if you were happy and content and had meaning in your life, you probably wouldn't spend so much time on social media. You would be actually doing things <laughs> and, and interacting with real human beings and, and um, not be so vain because that's essentially what it's about. You know, it's like uh, weak people become the bullies. Um, uh, people starved for attention will become, you know, very exhibitionistic. Uh, there are all these compensations going on. And that's true for that uh, social media culture also. Even technology is adapting to our vanities with, um, for instance, these little nice filters that make your skin smooth and you can have little funny things attached to your face and people go, wow, that's so cool. How, how do they do that? But in actual fact, it's kind of simple. But the question is rather, uh, why do they do that? And, you know, why are you looking at it? Because it, it tends to dumb people down. They just want something new uh, after this app or that app. Um, and now with... Um, AI and different kinds of AI uh, implementations of, uh, well, basically creating human expression in a kind of a flawless way. I think it's, it's a bit terrifying, but I think that the reason why that is happening is simply to keep people on the edge and focused on the screen and focused on um, things that are not conducive to finding real uh, meaning on their own individual level. Um, there are directors, um, who though delight in sort of encoding films, I call them little Easter eggs, mm -hmm. uh, with occultic symbols and, or, um, occult themes. Um, did they, did they 
I mean, why do they do that? Do you suppose uh, above and beyond just maybe for kicks and, you know, it's like, wow, did you see that? The, what he did there, that was interesting, the, you know, uh, in terms of film uh, or, or do these uh, occult, these hidden occultic symbols, do they have power or meaning above and beyond mm -hmm. the artistic? Yeah, I think I think uh, that that's a very good question also because um usually when you talk about really old uh, philosophies that you could put under the umbrella of the occult or or um spiritual or whatever you want to call it they're usually called uh perennials, perennial philosophy just like perennial flowers that just keep growing year after year after year. Um uh, and when something is perennial and thereby integrated in our culture, it may not be visible, it may be relegated to some dusty corners of a university um, or a library, but still it's there, you know, we can relate to it. And the things you mentioned before with the tarot and astrology are, are good examples of that. So I think that uh, when a director chooses to uh, integrate these things, um, probably it's because uh, to to titillate or create some kind of um, something that is cool. Uh, it's also quite common. I've seen that every 10 years or so, there's a cycle when suddenly fashion for young people start using a lot of symbols, but they have no real meaning because they're just casual t-shirts for, for kids even. Um, however, of course, there are exceptions. There could be directors, if we're talking about film, uh, who want to convey a message in which this symbol uh, has a function it carries signal in a way so i think it depends on what we're looking at how um, superficial the film is or how substantial it is if it's a generally a substantial film when you know that there's a kind of a uh, an artistic director who has say so or an artistic screenwriter who has say so and you find that there's enough intelligence there that nothing's uh, superfluous then you could say that if there's an occult symbol or several in the film that probably has a meaning they want to impose that meaning into their work whereas in fact if it's just uh, what you call it sort of in the in the line of raiders of the lost ark or or the mummy or things like that then it's just for kicks they just cull something from the little pool of uh coolness cool symbols right right uh, let's go back to the uh, the brand new one, source mm -hmm. magic. Let's uh, let's get a definition. What is source magic? Um, over these this, this uh, past decade, um, I have been thinking specifically about these things. And uh, as you mentioned, I've written another book called Oculture, uh, and this is a kind of a follow up to Oculture in the sense that I tend to look at things going on right now and try to figure out why they are going on and and what exactly is it about so um source magic is um kind of the the primal primeval magic that comes from um us being associated with a source um and and I've gone so far in this book that I call the source, actually, that magic is the source and the source is magic. And why is this relevant? Well, if you look at human culture, uh, you tend to, if you look way, way, way back in what we call prehistoric times, we still know enough based on um, 
uh, evidence that's been left, you know, the cave wall paintings and other items that we can follow uh, from a long time ago. And we can see that remaining in, in a few uh, archaic cultures that haven't really changed that much. And there, that's usually what's called a shamanic culture. There is someone in the tribe that goes on transcendental journeys or inner journeys, you can call it what you want, but they leave the rational mind frame and they go into a place inside themselves where they have visions and they interpret these visions um, uh, kind of a irrational way of acquiring information. And this information traditionally has been used not only for like selfish reasons for the person, but for the tribe or the little group or the family. Uh, so you have this thing where you use an irrational mind frame to get information that's conducive to the well-being of a slightly smaller uh, group or a slightly bigger group also for that matter. Uh, so those are our origins of uh, knowledge knowledge that is acquired and shared. And then if you look at um, human beings, human cultures spreading, uh, we don't have to look at the entire globe, but just focus on one little tribe, for instance. Um, as that grows and it becomes agrarian, meaning non-nomadic, it starts farming, uh, there's still this inherent need because we, we didn't know at the time what the hell was going on, you know, why is there thunder? Why is there, why is there you know, snow coming? It must be, you know, the gods up there uh, affecting us adversely or in a good way. So we have to, to um, appease them in a way or make them happy, um, dealing with outer forces. But at the same time, the information about how you do that comes from the inside. So as things grow, this uh, becomes a process of what I call, you know, uh, proxy uh, shamanic. That means that there are uh, priests, for instance, or magicians, sorcerers that you don't know personally, but that still has that function for the larger group, a group in which you may not know all the people. And then further on down the line, you have towns and cities and even countries and and the parts of the world with so many people yet the knowledge is preserved and the way you get knowledge is preserved in this inner uh, journeying the the shamanic and i that's what i call the source the source is the inner source where um knowledge and wisdom actually comes from and it can then be processed for the benefit of the uh, tribe and in extension we have religion in extension we also have science in extension we have basically anything in human culture comes from this original source today empiricists you know scientists will say that that's just a lot of hokum that's bullshit and and uh, uh airy fairy hocus pocus but in actual fact when you get to that uh, level of, of um, dialogue, there is one fundament of empiricism. And what is that? It's not the method itself of checking and rechecking and checking. It is speculation. You know, everything comes from a speculative idea that is then tossed into the cauldron or on the slab to be dissected and looked at, you know, and every, every empiricist knows that. Um, Everything begins in an irrational sphere that is then gradually rationalized in a way. And it all, it's the same process. And we, where does information come from? Where does uh, knowledge come from? It comes from inside, from our, in, 
uh, originally one person designated to be the interpreter of the outside world through journeying inwards. Uh, it, it seems in, in our culture um, that we still sort of allow for that source magic or we accept that that source magic influences the artist. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where does that song come from? Uh, you know, Paul McCartney, for example, is always yes. talking about being, he's the antenna. He doesn't write the music. It comes from somewhere else and so forth. Yeah. Um, but we, we don't, as you say, because of the, you know, materialism, I guess, after the, you know, the enlightenment and the industrial revolution, we have sort of, we are, we don't allow for science and source magic to sort of be mentioned in the same, in the same sentence. However, it does seem like if you look at what's happening in certain fields like uh, physics or quantum physics, it seems like they are starting to realign. Talk to me a bit, a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, they, they surely have, and I mean, it's it's not a a recent thing either. I think the 20th century was such a, a groundbreaking and revolutionary uh, century in many ways, and and. Um, if you are creatively inclined, for instance, say you're interested in art or culture, then you you tend to stick with that. That that's your um, field, and then you tend to look at everything else in human culture as you know they don't understand or they're simple, or they're too left brain, um, etc. And of course, that goes for if you're interested in science, then you might not be so interested in experimental art, for instance. But something that the 20th century showed us very well was that there was a general like upheaval, a, a new way of looking at things. And I mean, it, it's apparent in art, absolutely, because suddenly you had this really explosive experimental art in Dada and surrealism, and later on postmodern experimentalism, and you know, um, something completely unseen before. Uh, the 19th century was the height of sort of what you call bourgeois art with painting, decorative, figurative, that gradually sort of exploded into um, impressionism and more and more abstractions in a way. And in uh, uh, psychology, we could see that too. Psychology went from being um, something distinctly clinical and uh, pathologizing into going into more... Uh, uh, psychoanalytic fields, you know, going deeper and deeper into what are the drives, what drives people, and how do they re relate to their own drives. Archetypes. So kind of, yeah, exactly. And also going inside to find those answers, not necessarily some experts standing on the outside defining what it is. And, and in uh, physics, then, of course, the most famous one is, is uh, uh, Einstein and, you know, the theory of, of relativity that most of us still cannot understand what it's about. But it was a big thing that was eventually accepted by the by the uh, environment or of, of, of physics. Uh, but that was not the case in the beginning. Then it was just like uh, <laughs> hocus pocus, actually. And, and later on, I think today, perhaps the Einsteinian paradigms are perhaps looked upon as conservative today. Uh, I don't know, but for sure, as you mentioned, you know, quantum physics in general, um, this thing where there are parallel timelines, um, uh, alternate universes, etc., etc. That sounds still like science fiction, but it's something that that uh, 
physicists work with on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's all about, it's, it's the same thing. It's changing paradigms in order to find new things that can connect dots that are as yet uh, mysterious. It's basically taking up the stones under which you haven't looked yet and see what crawls underneath in a way. Um, so you could say that it's... Um, uh, acculturation in general requires uh, a new way of looking at things in order to find out deeper uh, lying truths, um, hidden strata uh, that contain inf new information to look at perhaps the same thing, but in a new way. Carl, we'll take a quick time out, come back and continue to discuss Source Magic, the origin of art, science and culture. of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not but she did and in the end what will i become senwa saga hellblade 2 play it now with game pass for the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase it's a culture and the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe for the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? You're listening to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Carl Abramson, Source Magic, the Origin of Art, Science, and Culture. What do you mean by magical realism? Um, that is a term that uh, uh, I perhaps appropriated or used. It, it usually comes from, from uh, literature, from the history of literature and from the study of literature. Uh, and I think uh, it's become too generic in a way. It usually relates to uh, South American authors that uh, sprinkle their stories with a bit of irrational stardust in a way. Uh, fairly straightforward stories uh, that um, somehow formally the way they're written or uh, in terms of contents are fantastic. And I mean, literally fantastic, not as a value judgment. Uh, it could be some weirdness going on that doesn't belong in that kind of context. Um, and um, uh, that's, that's I wouldn't say a tradition, but it's a, it's a literary scene. It's been around for a while. And I like it very much because there are... Um, there's wisdom in there in the actual technique and i being you know, i'm so interested in, in in magic in general and it's interesting uh, because fiction is magic it's the creation of a magical universe that you can share with another you know, reader so what happens as um, these magical realists do what happens if you uh, integrate in fiction a fictional narrative something that is off key something that is slightly askew, something that is uh, uh, not the way it's supposed to be. Well, it becomes interesting 
creatively interesting because that's exactly what people will go for and say, well, what's this? It's like if you have a little um, area on your hand that itches, then you will scratch it. It's something that is not uh, supposed to be there, but that, of course, becomes the most interesting thing there is because it goes against the grain. It's not supposed to be there in a way. And... and um, uh, in the book, I write about these things concerning, for instance, uh, media narratives. Um, I have magical uh, realism on one hand and, and what I call realistic magic on the other hand, that being um, this thing where the technology and the aesthetics of reporting, for instance, when you see something that is shaky, obviously filmed on a uh, smartphone uh then immediately our association is that it's news and it's true. You know, the way it looks makes us interpret a, a little clip, uh, although it could be completely fabricated. And if we have something that is super lavish with sonography, set design, uh, wardrobe, makeup, lighting, then we interpret that as fiction because that's the way we've been um, programmed to, to interpret sort of these two examples of moving images. And, and um, I'm not really trying to, to argue anything in, in this sense of, of magical realism, but I do believe that um, uh, we are very susceptible to influence uh, by you, by you know, uh, producers using these two extremes. Uh, carrying supposed truth carrying supposed fantasy and i'm interested in you know what happens if they if they merge in a way and i, I can see that uh there will be much more uh, experiments in the future i mean for instance technologically there are already movies being made on cell phones and they're not really trying to emulate that sort of news uh, running down the street with a shaky camera thing uh, because cameras on cell phones are so good nowadays you can actually shoot movies with them and they look good but what i'm talking about is is um, uh, i guess just a desire that people uh, are discerning and and that they think critically when they watch um, media uh, because in this day and age, uh, media is no longer um, the sole, um, what do you call it? Um, anyone can produce good looking stuff. That's what I'm trying to, because technology is really good and it's fairly inexpensive. It's so you democratized. Know someone, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's a good term. Exactly. And that means uh, potentially great radical changes, both for fiction and also for news reporting. And, and, and when we're on the subject of uh, uh, film cameras on in cell phones, uh, I remember very well when there was no such thing because they simply didn't exist. And then they came and there was democratization and were also used in media, you know, from, oh, there's an uproar here. There's an uprising. There's a, there's a war zone and you have these shaky images. Uh, and it has turned out great, truly in a democratizing way, is that, for instance, uh, oppression has been able to, uh, uh, you know, you've been able to to clamp down on oppression because there's uh, literary evidence uh, 
uh, in people's cell phone footage to show, for instance, that guy didn't have an accident. That guy was murdered, you know, things like that. So, um, but of course, that teaches us that anything we see that has that look uh, carries inherent truth. But that, of course, is not the case. <laughs> and, and the, you know, media producers and, and producers fiction, they know that. Uh, so it's it's it can become a dangerous thing uh, when uh, we become too accustomed to one particular kind of aesthetics, uh, because that aesthetic can then be uh, you can insert messages in there that are not supposed to be in there, so to speak. Talk to me about the the relationship between magic and nature. Mm-hmm. Um. In the book, um, in one of the pieces, um, I write that magic is. And that's from my point of view. I call myself a magical anthropologist, you know, someone who studies humans' uh, relation to magic historically and culturally. And when I write that magic is, uh, what I mean by that is that it's so imbued in everything in human culture not only historically traditionally when we were primitive societies and we had this sort of shamanic approach but but it still is we are still the same cave cave beings uh, actually with some pretty civilized uh, surface crust added uh, one other thing that is and simply is and is also all permeating is of course nature nature is uh, and so thereby you have a relation there that we whatever we do has to do with our relationship to nature and it may sound strange when for instance you might be sitting in a large city with you know millions of people you the only trees you see is like little park structure but apart from that it's just concrete and tall buildings and glass and and metal um and you walk on concrete so you're not even walking on soil however uh as individuals of so-called civilization uh we don't have to go that deep within ourselves to to realize that we are natural beings we belong in nature and this weird thing is just nature that we have created for ourselves for reasons of efficiency for reasons of commerce for reasons of many things um however uh we can never uh divest ourselves of our connection to nature and we when we really do that for instance when we build and construct things that are um detrimental to our own survival then we have actively left nature meaning for instance building buildings with materials that may be cheap but that may be dangerous uh, to us to live in you know and then it becomes something very uh, poignant and uh, visceral. You know, the lack of connectivity, connection to nature becomes threatening to our well-being. And of course, there are so many examples of how uh, benevolent it is to simply be in nature. It could be taking a walk in the forest or go hiking or immersing yourself in in water in this in in uh, the ocean or a river. Uh, and these things are not necessarily easy to explain rationally why. I'm sure some scientists can, psychologists and biologists can say that, oh, when you're immersed in the cold water, there are endorphins that make you feel, 
happy and uh, satiated and, and just, you know, content. And that's fair and fine. But I think that it goes deeper than that. I think it goes uh, down to the levels where you feel connectivity, where you feel a connection with everything that's alive. And that's one of the shamanic cornerstones um, in what I call the source or or also source magic in the sense that uh, holistic approach means that we are all everyone, everything, our dogs, our pets, uh, our bugs, uh, we're all part of the same biosphere. So again, it's not just hocus pocus uh, talking. It's a real scientific fact that we are all part of a biosphere. And then if you look at things like sentience, you know, I, I am me. I am aware that I am me. I can reflect many layers upon my identity, my existence. And I, I can see a kinship with you. I can see a kinship with basically all human beings because we have you know, similar features and we can speak. English is not my first language, but we can still communicate because we've taught ourselves to be communicative, uh, communicating uh, individuals. And I think that, that um, one key uh, feature in, in the process of becoming more aware, becoming more sentient in a way, is proximity to nature. You have to expose yourself to the outer nature. Um, and, and that's a real problem because um, there's an increasing movement development on this planet towards urbanization. And that, that means literally <laughs> moving away from nature into the urban human constructed things. And that I think will be extremely detrimental to, to uh, humanity. It already is because it also changes short term uh, the mind frame of the people living there into accepting newly created things that are detrimental as being benevolent. Whereas in fact, I'm not, you know, proselytizing that everybody should go back to nature and become hippies, uh, but I do believe that it's uh, conducive to health, balance, uh, clear-mindedness, to be regularly exposed to nature as such, not to go into a zoo, uh, not to watch it on National Geographic channel, but to actually go into a park, go into a forest, go on a trip to some somewhere wild, mountains, rivers all these things, um, um, because, uh, well, to me and to many, many others, it's it's uh, something that fills you, it revitalizes you. And again, I could see that scientifically it could be proven, you know, maybe it's like an infusion of more oxygen, uh, an infusion of magnetic energies from, from the uh, uncorrupted soil in a way. I'm sure there are many technical explanations why it's good, uh, but on the whole, um, I believe it's great to just like be with animals, be with other people. Um, I'm not saying you have to hug a tree, but to just be in the vicinity of a forest or inside a forest. It's great. And everybody knows it. Kids know it. Kids love it. Um, um, indigenous culture revere it. That's their religion. Uh, and it's something that we, I feel we have to stress. That's a strange word to say, but the, we have to stress uh, the value of, of going into nature. We'll take another time out and uh, come back. A few minutes remain with Carl Abramson, the author of Source Magic. Stay with us.
This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website strangeplanet.ca. Carl, I want to dial back uh, again to another book, but uh, before that, just a reminder, this is the new one, Source Magic, The Origin of Art, Science, and Culture. Um, and that is uh, your book on Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan. And uh, I, admittedly, you know, it's always kind of a tricky conversation for me. I'm, a, I'm an Orthodox Christian, and when we think of Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, that's kind of a, oh, that's a no-go zone. Um, what is it important for people to understand what are we? What am I missing about Anton Levain and the Church of Satan? Is was he a showman? Was he? Was there a deeper meaning there? Was it? Was it about shock value? What? Who was this guy? Mm. Uh, I think he was a, a bit of everything, and I think he would agree to that uh, description because he, he was obviously aware of the controversial aspects of the symbol. It wasn't a real thing. He didn't believe in any like, you know, anthropomorphic devil or anything like that. It was a symbol for him and he knew it was controversial. And yet it was something that he felt an affinity with, like a resonance with uh, culturally. Uh, and I think that um, he was interested in topics uh, like psychology, like magic and occultism, and um, experimented and you know tried to find his way, and he realized that that um, this has power because it has p the power to um, attract a few, but mainly repel more people. And if you have a strong symbol, of course you will get a lot of attention, most of it being negative attention. So he wanted to make uh, his concoction call it the Church of Satan, of course, very uh, controversial and provocative. Uh, yet within that uh, little group that attracted, again, a few people, whereas most were sort of confounded or negative, but he did get a lot of media attention. So he had a great chance to talk about what he really believed in. And I've, I've called it um, uh, Pop Nietzsche, you know, for an American market. He sort of distilled Nietzsche and similar philosophers of will, uh, Schopenhauer, you know, people talking about will and how important will is for a human being to be, uh, find meaning, you know, and not be just like a little flower in the wind that goes this way and that way, just to have a focus and, and, and find meaning in your life. So uh, in that sense, he was... Uh, consciously aware media person and he was good at it and what he was selling uh, in the sense that uh, you know he wrote some books the satanic bible satanic rituals so he was selling books but at the same time uh, because i i got to know him eventually towards the end of his life uh, i could see that there there was more than mere showmanship there was more than just you know hawking books in a way or, or trying to make a uh, a fortune out of uh fooling susceptible people uh, uh the, the general assumption which was also mine uh, is that uh, it was a, like a valid organization dealing with serious topics yes anti-christian uh, but at that time meaning mid-60s when the church of satan appeared they were kind of an interesting group because they were right in between the very conservative, rigid America that was invested in the Vietnam War, and you know, and then you had the 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 weird hippies and the flower children and, and the psychedelic revolution going on on the other hand, that were just like you know, let it hang loose and and uh, free love and and in between these were the Church of Satan and Lavey, um, offering uh, absolutely 
sexual experimentation, uh, existential uh, experimentation, meaning really get to the core of who you are, uh, yet in a dark light in this case. And also being in favor of law and order and a kind of, I wouldn't say draconian, but you know, pretty stern view of life, um, yet filled with freedom to experiment uh, with all these things that sort of enhance life. So in that sense, I think it was very much a product of the 60s that were so um, uh, diametrically, you know, it was extreme times. The pendulum was going really back and forth. Uh, over the years, uh, his source um, of, uh, um, well, his source magic was basically his own mind and his own life and his own fetishes from growing up, movies he liked. Uh, books that he loved, science fiction, pulp fiction, all these things merged into uh, a magical system. And that was new when you look at the history of magic. Because previously, it's been about elemental magic and planetary magic and this sort of macro perspective uh, when you're out there in the, the cosmos, in a way, trying to draw down forces. And then you have gods from different systems. And it's all very romanticized and, and, and a bit abstract. But LaVey was very much of a psychological, psychological oriented figure and he pulled things from out of himself like uh, the rabbit in the hat so to speak were things that had made him tick as a kid and that he used that energy to look at it why do I still like this you know uh, weird um, radio show from the 1930s it filled him with something and then he wove elements like that and also music forgotten songs he was a great musician and he wove that into his magical system so for me as a magical anthropologist it was very interesting to to know him because he really brought something new to the table it certainly not for everyone and by using a symbol like that of course you will turn people off but he wanted to turn a few people on people who felt that affinity with the outsider with with a kind of contrarian force in a way and and he was quite successful at it so i would say mm, showman yeah to a certain extent but he was for real in the sense that he had something substantial uh, to offer philosophically and in terms of magic also ultimately what do you want people to come away with from the new book source magic uh, I think it's fairly simple. It, it's in an anthology of, of essays that deal with culture, uh, that deal with source magic and magical anthropology. I would love for people to go uh, to realize how inspiring and fun it can be to look at these weird things that are going on in our culture, uh, not specifically from my point of view, but in a point of view that sort of, again, lifts the stones and looks what's underneath here, you know, not just accepting everything that we are force fed with, but just trying to connect the dots in your own way. So it's a kind of an um, imperative. I would like for people to think for themselves and to think for themselves in new creative ways and look at whatever they're interested in. And uh, the book is available at Amazon, I'm guessing. That's right. And, and I guess on all major online and physical uh, bookstores, it has good distribution, so it should be easy to find. And uh, for more information, the website carlabrahamson.com and uh, the, uh, the URL for that is in the episode notes for this podcast. Carl, a great pleasure meeting you. I enjoyed this very much. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thanks. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday and Friday.